Welcome to the Band of History. Today, we have a special episode, one that's outside our normal formula of history or interview. Today, we are taking a road trip, one where we will go through some of the prominent areas of Southern Ontario, Canada, and recall the areas and the places in which the band called home, places where they played, and much, much more. We aren't doing this alone. We have a tourism expert and writer, Gabby, or the hippie historian, to help take us through our journey. So if we are taking a road trip, the first place, Gabby, that you have on your 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 multi-day road trip is Old East Village, London. Uh, and there's a specific reason as to why this is a location for stop one. Why, why would people go there first? Yeah, so um, Old East Village is actually home of the Brass Rail Tavern. It doesn't stand there anymore, but that is where Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks used to play, and they were known for their steaks and their burgers and their pump room, but most of all for their live entertainment. So it was kind of a community staple in the area. Um, and as time went on, Old East Village really started to gentrify, and now it's going through a bit of revitalization. Um, so where Brass Rail Tavern used to stand, it's a community health center, but at the time it was kind of the, the place to be on the weekend to see a live band. Um, so it was definitely a place that the Hawks passed through. That's interesting. And yeah, the gentrification, I, I remember I lived in London for a short period of time and uh, I heard about the Brass Rail, Rail Tavern and I had gone downtown to see if I could figure out where it was. And then there stood uh, the community center. So I want to pay special mm -hmm. note to people who uh, are in the area as well. Um, the London Music Hall of Fame is there uh, and there's some great memorabilia. Garth actually opened up the Hall of Fame portion uh, a few years back. Um, and that's where I interviewed him, actually. And there's some great memorabilia there as well. But the Brass Rail, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, too, was one of the first times that Garth had um, actually seen Ronnie Hawkins play, uh, which, is, which is cool. Um, and then in terms of other recommendations, you know, obviously people are coming uh maybe to check out the area check out some of the cool history there do you have any recommendations for people on like other things to do places to eat places to you know buy things things like that for sure so um like i said because it's going through a revitalization period it's really a neighborhood that has a mix of kind of casual places and then some upscale places so if you're looking for some good places to eat there's three craft breweries right in the area a really good distillery that makes awesome pizza and then if you are a progies fan my favorite stop in that area is unique food attitudes they make those authentic polish pierogies um, that are just like so good um, if you're in the area on a saturday you should just definitely check out the market at the western fairgrounds um, every saturday in the morning it used to be saturdays and sundays but because of covid and i don't know how much you want to get into this but anyways used to be Saturdays and Sundays. Now it's just Saturdays. Um, but that's a really great market. Lots of local food producers and eateries in there. A little bit of live music in the morning. And if you're coming in late, the Mockingbird in the area is a really cool new speakeasy. So the area has kind of kept that mix of grittiness and cool um, awesome. as they revitalize forward. Yeah. Awesome. And a speakeasy is definitely something that these guys would have uh, hung out with in their heyday back in the 50s and 60s. Um, so that's oh. awesome. And, and going into our next stop, uh, we, we, we have Western University, which um, 
many Canadian listeners might know, uh, if not U.S., it's a, it's a large Canadian uh, university in town. And it's actually where Mr. Garth Hudson attended university for a short time. So, um, Gabby, Gabby, fill us in a little bit on why why people might want to visit uh, Western sure. University. So Western University is a really kind of a cool place. The buildings are super old. It's got that sort of Harvard feel, I would say, to some of the buildings. And then there's some that are more modern. So if you just kind of walk around campus, take in the site, DeGreth Hudson would have went here to university. And just six minutes away, he attended high school at Medway High School, if you're interested in checking that out. But um, at Western, he went there for just one short year, studied music, and then dropped out, but obviously kept a very storied career from there. So walk around the university, look at all the old buildings. They all have some really interesting histories of their own. Um, and the alumni that have gone to Western is pretty pretty crazy in and of itself. Um, to name a few other musicians, Beja Bulat, Duncan Coots, uh, and Mike Turner from Our Lady Peace, Stephen Mokio, and then uh, to go even further, like celebrities from kind of all walks of life. So Jagmeet Singh went to Western, William Lyon Mackenzie King, uh, Nobel laureate author Allison Rowe. So it's really it's a neat campus, and you're in good company when you're walking those grounds. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely steep in history, and you feel it walking through there, um, which which is super cool. Uh, and I tried to get Garth into the Music Alumni Hall of Fame there. I haven't been successful yet, but we're trying to get him in. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, Garth again lived in London and Medway. You you suggested Medway High School, and that's still that's still up, eh? That's still around. Yep. Yeah, that's still. I played basketball there in high school, so it is definitely still, awesome. still kicking, and it's just six minutes away. So, I mean, I don't know how much you'll actually be able to see, but drive by it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Bad idea. For sure. And and next, we're 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 leaving London. We're going on a mm-hmm. bit of a drive for around an hour or so. And stop three is the lost hamlet of uh, Blaney, I believe is how you pronounce it. Yeah. Um, and this is a little bit of an interesting one because. Uh, there's a little bit of history about its existence and things like that. So do you want to dive in why Blaney's specifically important? Sure thing. So yeah, it's about an hour, hour, 15 minutes away, a really pretty drive through the country. And normally we wouldn't have you drive out to the middle of nowhere, but it's a cool stop and it's on your way to the next stop. So Blaney is at the intersection for anyone who's looking for it, the intersection of Yule Road and McDowell Road um, or Regional Road 1 in Norfolk County. And this intersection in Blaney is actually, it was once home to a grocery store, a gas station, and Rick Danko's birthplace. So it's also where he was living when he made the decision to go on the road with the Hawk, with Hawk, uh, Levon Helm, Robbie Robertson, Richard Manuel, Garth, Garth Hudson. So he was only 17 years old and he was living in just this small town of Blaney, but his world was obviously about to just explode. So the hamlet actually no longer exists, but if you drive out to where it was, there is a sign there and a plaque dedicated to Danko. That's cool. Uh, yeah, I know yeah. there's some confusion around that because Simcoe, which we'll get into in a little bit here, but Simcoe, a lot of people say is where he's from. But yeah, it's this this town. And for those of you who don't know too, Rick, uh, a family of farmers, actually, big family of farmers. And in the inside sleeve of music from big pink there's a photo that's quite famous of all of them standing with their families which was kind of said a couple things about them that they loved their families and even though they were rock type musicians they weren't kind of rebelling against their parents and that actually took place on i believe rick's uncle's farm and uh he was he was preparing to be a butcher 
he was a butcher's assistant at the time, actually, before he, he gave that all up, like you said, to go on the road with Ronnie Hopkins. So the plaque is, is uh, and the sign is super cool. Um, and then next week we go into stop four, which is Simcoe, Ontario. Um, tell us a little bit about Simcoe, because I feel like even for some Canadians here, you know, they don't necessarily always stop at Simcoe, uh, in, in Simcoe. Yeah, so Simcoe is basically like the heart of Norfolk County, I would say, um, and they're known for having amazing produce, all kinds of locally grown things. It's a huge agricultural region. And like you said, the boys grew up on a farm. So it's still very steeped in that agricultural history. Um, Delhi, which is another part of Oxford, or of Norfolk County, was big in the tobacco boom. And then the rest of Norfolk County is kind of, uh, they call it Ontario's garden. Um, so as you pass through Blaney and into Simcoe, uh, you're going to find people connected to food in big ways. And as you drive through town, you'll see Simcoe Composite still there, Danko's High School. Um, and on your way through, I'm definitely going to encourage you to stop for a bite at the Combine Restaurant. It's one of my favorite restaurants in the area. It's all farms table cuisine. It's really good. Um, and Simcoe has really kept uh, their ties to Danko in a big way. Uh, 2013 Mumford & Sons actually hosted their Gentlemen of the Road Festival. And they chose Simcoe as the only Canadian tour site for that festival, citing Danko as the inspiration for that or the re- one of the reasons why they yeah. chose Simcoe. Yeah, for sure. I remember reading an article, which I think you, everybody can find out there online if you type in uh, Mumford & Sons, Rick Danko. There's an article about how they, before they... I believe before they chose that destination as a festival, they made a pilgrimage out there because they loved the band and they loved Rick Danko so much that they wanted to check out where he is from, yeah. uh, which is super cool because it kind of gives Simcoe a little bit of uh, much, much needed praise. It's a, it's a great area and it's, you know, it's obviously not Toronto or, or Vancouver or something like that. So it's really cool that these Brits came over and uh, went up to Simcoe and kind of just loved it that much that they wanted to host one of their, uh, their tour dates there. Totally. I think it's got like a population of around 14,000. So it would have been a pretty big deal for the, it was a big deal. I remember it. So yeah, very cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, and then next, yeah, uh, this, this one was, this one's really, really, really interesting. Um, stop five pop Ivy's AKA the summer gardens. So this yeah. one's got a lot of history. Um, so let's let's just dive right in and then we can try to get through as much as we can and, and uh, really explore for people. So tell us a little bit about the Summer Garden. Sure, yeah. So this one was actually a little bit trickier to uh, dig out for myself. I just kept finding um, there was tour dates listed at Pop Ivy's and a recording from Pop Ivy's, but I could not find where Pop Ivy's actually was in Port Dover. Until I made the connection, I found a great blog online. I think it was vintageinn.ca, which helped me make the connection that it was actually called the Summer Gardens and Pop Ivy's was a part of that. So it was located on Walker Street in Port Dover, which is basically the main drag. You take it all the way down to the water um, and it would have been there. So now if you go uh, down that main drag, there's a place called Nectals. Um, and right next to Nectals, there are some picnic tables where you can enjoy some fish and chips or an ice cream cone or whatever you want. Um, and that is where the summer gardens would have stood. Cool. Um, and, yeah. And and with okay. that, and with that, um, 
I think this is also obviously it's kind of like a summer thing. I know they played a lot of summer shows out there. You had a lot of uh, vacationers and weekend getaways there and things like that. So it was a hopping place back then. But also I think it's really important. It was one of the first times um, Ronnie Hawkins and the band remember seeing Richard Manuel, who Mm -hmm. eventually joined uh, the Hawks. Um, And you dug up this one quote from, I think it was Levon in his book, This Wheels on Fire, uh, about seeing Richard Manuel, right? Yeah. So um, it was, Levon's talking about the Hawks. He's saying when the Hawks, they were opening, sorry, the Revolts were opening for them. And when he saw Manuel on the piano, he said, see that kid playing piano? He's got more talent than Van Silburn, who was um, the winner of the Tchaikovsky International piano competition at the time. Um, So he was kind of, yeah, a big to-do. So quite the compliment. Um, And the place, so the Summer Gardens, but the Summer Garden actually was built three times. So at first, um, it was originally built in 1921, and it was kind of up on like these wooden structures and close, close to the water. It almost looked like um, the building from Dirty Dancing, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah, Um, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) so it started sinking like into the water and into the sand, and eventually one winter, a huge storm just took it out. Um, But it was rebuilt in 1921 or 1929 um, in just 19 days by volunteers uh, under the direction of Ben Ivey, who had built the previous one as well. Um, So that's where that name Ivey comes from. And then finally, in May of 1932, it was rebuilt again, um, the final time. And just four years later, Ben Ivey passed away, leaving the summer garden to his son, Don. And that is Pop Ivey, hence where we got this name, Pop Ivey. They called him Pop. Um, He was like quite the character, apparently, because he was owning it in kind of its heyday, right? So he would like always be walking around in a white tuxedo or a white suit with a red rose and chatting people up so that's when it really really kind of got that dance poly vibe um there's a big old octagon floor it was really popular amongst world war ii vets so it's had a really a really cool history if you ask me um yeah over the time and lots of other acts yeah yeah you were mentioning i think we talked about uh like count basie and uh louis armstrong and stuff like there so it was like obviously the hawks came through but it also attracted some you know other influential musicians of the day uh totally. to the stage yeah lighthouse like lots lots awesome. um yeah and then unfortunately all good things kind of come to an end and the venue burned down in 1979 and it was never rebuilt and just some accounts like people stood by and basically watched and cried as this thing burned to the ground so um pretty sad for norfolk county but maybe it will be rebuilt one day Awesome. And uh, Pop wrote a poem, uh, as your research suggests, and I'll include that in the uh, description, the show notes description. That way we don't have to do a dramatic telling because I think that would be awesome. <laughs> I, I think Pop uh, Pop would uh, do it justice. We we might not be able to do it I, justice. I think you're right. But that's think, that's yeah. that's too bad. And and um, I think you're and I think it's why going to these things are important. Obviously, the ones that are still standing are there. It's super important. But even the things that aren't there, it's still cool to go there and kind of I don't know about you, but I feel a certain energy when I know something happened there. And then I go there and I kind of feel it. I'm like, wow, this is cool. Like trying to imagine myself back when there was this cool venue with really hip music happening there. So that's that's very interesting. 
Definitely. And it's still, it's quite a, like, it's a cool part of town because you're still in this like happening area. The pier is just a couple minutes walk away. There's like hot dog stands, there's fish and chips. Like there's lots of people down there in the summer. So it's, it's a neat little pilgrimage to make if you can. Awesome. Yeah. And that, that kind of wraps up what we would consider as day one of the itinerary. Uh, Definitely. You know, chock full of amazing things, uh, stops here and there, great food. Uh, and you also recommended, I think, staying a night somewhere, right? And I think this place is super cool. And I, I think band fans would, uh, would admire it a lot. Yeah. Um, so there's this place called Long Point Eco Adventures, and they do like rope courses and zip lining and things like that. But then they also have glamping on site. So um, it's just outside Turkey Point, which is not a far drive away at all. Um, and you're super close to the lake. So of course there's lots of Airbnbs down there. Um, there's a travel lodge and a Best Western, but check out the little guys if you can. Awesome. Um, yeah. yeah. Good spots to eat there too. Awesome. Yeah. Get out there in the forest, just like the band did when they were making their first two albums and, uh, yeah, really live it. Um, and then we start day two and I think, uh, if there's any of our American fans that know of maybe a place along this of, of, of a, sm- a smaller town, it would be Stratford, obviously known um, internationally, really, too, for the theater scene there. But it mm-hmm. also happens to be the home of Richard Manuel. And I feel like Stratford has done best by uh, any of its members, especially their Canadian members, um, with Richard here. So let's dive a totally. little bit into the beautiful town of Stratford. Where do we start? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, Stratford could be a full day in and of itself if you have the time to really slow down and take it in. Um, So I'm going to recommend that you start your day with a Balzac coffee, which is right on the main drag, uh, Ontario Street, I believe it's called. And yeah, grab that hot coffee and then head out. So as you said, Stratford was the birthplace of Richard Manuel. And awesomely enough, um, it's also where he met Hawkins and the band back at the Stratford Coliseum when Hawkins opened for his band, The Regal. So just down the road from that coffee shop at the corner of Ontario Street and Downey Street, you're going to find the star on their Walk of Fame dedicated to Manuel. Stratford started that program in 2002 to honor other notables that actually your American fans, of course, probably know Justin Bieber as well. So he's got a star there. And then um, they really have done like a lot for him to remember him. So just a short walk away um, there's a bench erected for him in his honor, adorned with the lyrics from I Shall Be Released. And that bench sits along the Avon River in this like really peaceful looking spot. So just yeah. take your coffee there, enjoy your start to your day and maybe start a little slower. Yeah, Bring for your sure. iPod. Yeah. That's what I did. I went there. I went there. Um, my now wife and I went there and we, we, yeah, we sat there and we played some band music and just kind of, you know, took yeah. it all in, you know, it's, it's a great spot. Like you said, right along the river there, if you get it on a nice summer day or a nice fall day, mm-hmm. it's such a beautiful spot. If you're, if you're thinking about paying your respects to Richard uh, himself, uh, there is also his, his grave uh, in Stratford. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So his grave site is at the Avondale cemetery and you can take some time. It's not far away from Uh, the spot along the river at all. I think you could probably even walk there. I can double check that though. Um, But yeah, so I think between those two activities, that's like a nice quiet way to remember him. Mm -hmm. And then if you really want to dive into some of his history, uh, the uh, visit to the Stratford Perth Museum is definitely what I would recommend doing. 
Um, and until May 2021, the very end of May 2021, they're going to have an exhibit on called The Road to Woodstock. And that basically celebrates, of course, the iconic festival, Woodstock Music and Arts Festival. But there's a heavy concentration on Woodstock natives, John Till, Ken Kalmusk, and Richard Manuel, of course, um, who were the Rebels, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you can kind of learn how they paved their road all the way to stardom and then browse this exhibit. But yeah, you do that's, have to book an appointment in advance right now. Yeah, that's cool. I, I went to, I went to it uh, when it opened. Um, and uh, yeah, obviously out of that, of that band, they all went on to some cool stuff. John Till was played with Janis Joplin um, and full tilt boogie band. He was at Woodstock Ken went on to play with Great Speckled Bird, uh, which was associated with uh, Ian and Sylvia. Um, and obviously Richard went on to be one of the lead singers and writers in the band. So, you know, pretty good for some strap for kids coming out of the 60s there. Um, I would say so. Yeah. And, and I, I love that Ken went on with Ian and Sylvia because they're so iconically Canadian as well. Yeah, so exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and their family still live in the area. I had a great pleasure to talk to some of them and John Till is still alive. So um, nice. uh, he's great. I want to make one special note just back on the Richard Grave. Um, mm-hmm. if, if you're going looking for it, guys, remember, it's not, it's not fancy and it's not big. It's actually just... Um, it's in the ground. I've, I don't know exactly the right terminology for it, but it's basically just a stone in the ground that says Richard Manuel and it has this piano logo on it. So if you think you've missed it, uh, just keep on looking. It's there. It's very close to um, like a little walking path road. And if depending on the time of year, when I found it, it was covered in mud and slush because it it is used as a thoroughfare for some of the lawn care um, <laughs> in the area. So definitely keep an eye out and you'll find it. Um, but mm-hmm. Now you've you've spent the day, you know, the quiet day looking at Richard's um, uh, star or his bench or or his tombstone or going to check out the cool exhibit at the Strath uh, Stratford, or sorry Stratford Perth Museum. I think there's some other things too that I think we should mention just because you're in Stratford, uh, like the theater. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I mean Stratford Festival Theater is basically renowned um, from all all over the world for especially for their Shakespearean performances but they do other plays every single summer um and it's they bring in some really really great actors and funnily enough they also bring in some musical performance performances including the band who came there November 2nd 1985 um so it's a great spot if you can catch a show they really don't do a bad job on any of them so uh, and there's new shows every year to check out and then there's some, also Stratford is really known for having a vibrant culinary scene. So some of my favorite spots are Pazzo. It's like a pizza spot. Um, the Red Rabbit, who is only taking reservations within a 50 kilometer radius right now. So just make sure you're calling ahead to cool. check on that. Yeah. Awesome. awesome. Uh, highly recommend Stratford, guys. Um, and, it you know, it's a great spot. But segueing into day three, uh, mm-hmm. tr- Toronto. So I think... You know, a lot of people associate the Hawks and the band with Toronto, um, as do most people um, outside of Canada, especially. Uh, Toronto is that place that everybody knows about. Um, but you, in your research, there's there, uh, we're going to talk about a lot of a lot of spots. But what did you really find when you were digging into the Hawks and the band? Uh, what did you kind of find about Toronto? 
I think what's cool about Toronto, and I mean, a lot of the venues are no longer there, of course, because ben- Toronto was such a hot spot for musical innovation, especially in the late 50s to early 70s. But it's cool with the band because you can really follow their whole career through Toronto. I mean, they played here with the Hawks, but then they also played here in their Bob Dylan days. And then they came back and really like drove it home with an awesome um, return to Massey Hall. So it's it's pretty cool because you can basically follow the story of their career in one city from small beginnings to big end. And most of the spots are within this like half hour radius of one another. Cool. Supposing there's good traffic, of course, but yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Awesome. So, let's yeah. start with, let's start with stop one, which um, is one of the ones that I wish were still here. Cause I just would love to love to just go in and see what was happening there. But oh, stop really? one is the Hawk's nest or what was the Hawk's nest? Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, you're right. It doesn't stand anymore. It's right across from the Eaton Center. So I believe it is a um, called Tokyo Smoke. It's a high-end cannabis store. Um, And then it's kind of surrounded by some brands like Five Guys and Winners. But in the 50s and 60s, 333 Young Street, where it was standing, was actually like a really hot area for music. It was kind of there. And then it was Yorkville. Um, Those were kind of the two spots. And Yorkville was more folk. And Young Street was more rock and roll. So opening in the late 40s, the Cook Door, which I believe I'm not butchering that, um, it became one of the most popular rock and roll entertainment spots of the 50s and 60s. Uh, it first became popular in 1947 among military men returning from World War II. Um, and that's be- just because new easier liquor license made it possible for uh, the venue to serve alcohol and have live entertainment at the same time because that wasn't legal um, prior to that. So Ronnie Hawkins began gigging here as far back as 1958 when it was still this like high class cocktail lounge. But by the 1960s, it became a little grittier, a little more country. Um, There was like stools made of saddles and there was red walls, that kind of thing. Um, And there was a ton of other super cool venues all the way along Young Street. So the Colonial Tavern, Steele's Tavern, Friars Tavern, which was another huge venue for the band. Um, it was hopping. And this spot is, yeah, super significant to the band. July 11th, 1960, Ronnie and the Hawks played their very first Canadian gig. And then they played again in 1963. And I was reading um, a Vice article recently. Ronnie and the Hawks played residencies here six nights a week on and off for a decade. So pretty pretty neat yeah, that, that's um, awesome. yeah so and then of course Ronnie Hawkins opened the Hawk's Nest above the Coke door which was basically like a teen dance club where he of course played but then um, he also brought in like a lot of really cool acts uh, the Kinks Steppenwolf when they were still the Sparrows so yeah it was a neat venue awesome the yeah, yeah the the history around that is super interesting and I dived into some of the earlier episodes of the podcast but Ronnie Hawkins really got big here as opposed to Arkansas where he was originally from with his rockabilly sound because up until that kind of post World War II era rock and roll music wasn't really that popular in Canada they were still very much living in the big band jazz um, blues type eras and you know Young Street was. Uh, CD, but it had all these amazing venues and you every single night of the week 
Uh, it was either the Hawks playing or up the street, Otis Redding might be playing or Joni Mitchell and Neil Young might be playing up on the other side of the street or something. So it was like this really kind of lively music uh, based area. There's actually a mural still of Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks. If you keep on walking up young, I don't know the exact address, but there's a big mural painted on the side of a building. I went about a year and a half ago looking for it. It took me a little bit, but I found it. Um, it's really mm. an interesting part of history. But nowadays, uh, it's different. And Young Street's obviously undergone a lot of um, transition. So do you want to talk about what happened kind of towards the 80s? Yeah, so eventually uh, the venue turned into a strip club, which is actually the story for a lot of venues in this area and in Yorkville. Um, so it turned into a strip club and then it shut down completely. And in the 80s, it revived itself as the iconic flagship store for HMB. And it was like that for quite a long time, actually, until quite recently when HMB closed down. And now it's kind of gone through a number of different renters and now it's tokyo smoke <laughs> Tokyo smoke. <laughs> never been there i don't know it that well but <laughs> no i i haven't been there since it's been the tokyo smoke either but uh, if you enjoy cannabis i guess check it out um but yeah like, yeah, like like you're saying the, it's still a, it's a it's a hap, it's a happening area there's still tons of stuff there like the eaton center right so it's still pretty definitely. pretty uh fun to spend uh, a little bit of time down there definitely yeah cool um and then 15 minutes away is the former Concord Tavern. If you want to chat about that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, the Concord Tavern, interestingly enough, yeah, like 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 we see today, it's a Long and McQuaid. Um, I actually know some people. I actually didn't know that was the, I've been to this Long and McQuaid and I did not know that yeah. it was the Con, uh, the Concord Tavern. So what, what specifically makes the Concord Tavern uh, important in the lore of the band and the Hawks? Yeah, I think it's just because they were known for these like epic two-week-long residencies uh, in 1961, sorry, and then they come back and they do two more in August and September of 64. They had these like really popular twist and dance nights that the band would play. So it's um it's mostly just the fact that they would like come here and play every single night for two weeks. That's insane to me because it doesn't really happen, but you hear about these kind of um histories throughout Toronto at various venues. I mean, there's Stomp and Tom residencies at the Horseshoe Tavern. And I guess because they don't happen as much anymore, it's it's a little bit um, quirky to think about now, but yeah. um, I, I just would have loved to see it. Yeah, they they would. This is where these guys cut their teeth, right? And they would play. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they'd play the weekend. They play the matinee show, even. And I know Ronnie Hawkins was a big stick, stickler on these guys staying and playing these shows, and then practicing after the shows uh, until the very early morning. Um, so yeah, residencies. You're right. They don't happen that much. I know um, the great Cameron House um, on Queen Street has residencies. It's a great spot. Mm -hmm. um, open a lot a lot uh later than uh when the band or even the hawks would have played there but um let's let's keep on going to one of the <laughs> coolest places in toronto stop three which mm -hmm. is massey hall massey hall is not only my favorite venue venue um anywhere but it's probably canada's most iconic venue and for really great reasons so it was built between 1892 and 1894 uh, taken under by Hart Massey in honor of his son, who had just passed away from typhoid. And the building would remain Canada's only venue built specifically for music until the 1920s, which is a pretty big deal. And it makes sense because the place just sounds amazing. I mean, they honestly and obviously built it 
with the idea that there'd be live music there um, in mind. So it's designated both nationally and provincially as a historic site, has incredible acoustics and an ambiance that just can't be beat. Um, and in addition to that, of course, it has a storied history of amazing musicians. I mean, Gordon Light, but it's basically his second home. Um, yeah. He's played there like over 150 times. Neil Young has recorded an album there. Uh, there's just tons of like iconic Canadian music pieces of history that have happened kind of on that hallowed hallowed ground, I would say. Um, and of course, among those many, many uh, others was Bob Dylan. And he played back-to-back -back nights there on November 14th and 15th, 1965 with Levon and the Hawks, as they were known at that time. Um, and he played two sets. So of course, this is very iconic. I keep saying iconic. This is, <laughs> yeah, anyways, he played two sets, but um, at the time he was doing one acoustic and then he would come back his electric set and as we all know by this point I think he got pretty mixed reviews that often went on the side of what I would say is pretty awful reviews just because people didn't want him to go electric yet yeah that's that's crazy I you know obviously that's a very storied time the uh, Dylan electric era and obviously along with that Dylan electric era one of the big proponents of that uh, being a thing was was the band so uh, getting getting booed, getting booed uh, even though you're coming to the concert to see Bob Dylan. So that's that's crazy. And uh, you found one review specifically um, by oh, who was it here? I forget Bruce who was. Lawson. Yeah, yeah, for the Globe and Mail, right? And what did he have to say about? Yeah, so it's kind of funny how he wrote the article actually because he had requested an interview with Bob Dylan several times, and several times he was denied by. Bob's team and they said he doesn't really do press so I think he was going in with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder so he basically wrote the article as if he was doing a silent interview with Bob while the concert was going on <laughs> so it's it's kind of bizarre if you read it but um one of my favorite quotes was the first half of the jingle jangle evening ends and we know we have seen and heard part of what we used to know as the real Dylan and then reinforced by the Hawk beat and almost every electronic gadget ever invented to boost noise to the unbearable level. Then he sings about a one-eyed dwarf. So it's kind of like his, his take on the first half and then his take on the second half. And obviously wasn't very favorable. Um, and then he quotes other people that he talked through, talked to throughout the evening. Um, someone who says he once was the greatest writer. He was the greatest writer. was <laughs> like emphasizing that was in the past. Um, he's just a cheap imitation of the Beatles. So um, wow. yeah, a lot of really negative reviews. He did say there was a little bit of clapping, but yeah. I mean, it's funny because they would have got street cred for that later, but yeah, that's, that's, that's a thing too. And as we know with that, not long after Levon, Levon actually quit the group because he didn't, uh, he quit the tour too because he didn't want to do this anymore. He was tired of getting booed. He's like, I, you know, I'm, I'm sitting behind this drum kit every night and I'm just getting booed. Like, I don't, I don't want to do this. And he took off. But um, triumphantly, the band returned mm -hmm. in the '70s, which I, I know for a fact, and I've talked about it, was a very bittersweet moment for them. And uh, they came back in the '70s, right? Yeah, they come back in 1970 to play a set and really like funnily enough, the Global Mail the next day, the headline was home again, the band does it right. So <laughs> I guess they, uh, they got them in the end. But uh, yeah, I mean, 
it's, it's interesting because I can't imagine how they would have felt coming back given their previous experience, but. Yeah. And the, I know from, uh, from research, you know, it was a little bit of a different atmosphere. Obviously people were there to see them um, and they had their families there. It was a homecoming show for them because they had spent so much time in Woodstock and, and, and touring, touring the U S as well as the band. So it was a homecoming. Uh, Robbie, most of Robbie's family lived, lived in Toronto specific, specifically Cabbage Town. Uh, so I think it was it was a big deal for them. But currently Massey Hall um, is is going uh, is doing some changes, correct? So mm-hmm. if you want to visit it, I believe you can still go outside and see it. But in terms of getting inside, what's what's the deal with everything going on there? Yeah, so they're basically doing like their largest renovation they have un- ever done in the history. And they're working really closely with uh, Toronto Heritage to make sure that that really preserves the uh, vibe while making the building more accessible. So those renovations are supposed to finish up by 2021, um, which will, uh, then you can book tours. You can just email in and they'll give you information about public tours. But until then, there's still some plaques along the outside. There's that big iconic Massey Hall sign um, on the outside, which is a really good photo op for your road trip if you're into it. Um, and just take some time to like look up some of the people that have played there because it's a really, really important and iconic Canadian venue. Yeah. Speaking of their fellow uh, Canadian musician, Gordon Lightfoot, obviously, as mentioned, I saw him there on his last um, last tour. I think his final tour ever playing at Massey Hall. It's definitely a place where you sit down in those old wooden seats. Oh, uh, yeah. Soon to be maybe updated seats, but old wooden seats that um, it's just, you know, you can feel it. It's steeped in, in, steeped in uh, music history there. But going gotcha. to stop four, we're going up to Bloor Street West and we're taking a look at Varsity Stadium. Mm-hmm. So this is actually part of the University of Toronto campus. It's an outdoor football stadium. And uh, the AGO is right around the corner. The ROM isn't too far. So it's actually a pretty artsy area um, and part of the university campus, of course. But... Uh, 1969 the Toronto Pop Festival was held there and that was the band's first Canadian performance as the band so that was kind of it was a festival started by Ken Walker and John Brower and it was the country's first pop festival ever and it's kind of gone on down in history as like having one of the most seriously epic lineups of all time Um, 28 groups over 200 performers all within two days 12 p.m. 12 a.m. Like we're talking bands, Velvet Underground, Sly and the Family Stone, and of course, Ronnie Hawkins himself. Um, so it was a pretty, pretty awesome. Now, I think I was just listening to a recent episode of yours, Tyrell. Yeah. And I think the band actually didn't have a great, a great uh, review. They were having some equipment problems. Some people were calling them too country. Yeah, I think what happened, especially early on, like the technology wasn't really great because we're talking about these huge festivals with 500,000 plus people in some of them. Um, So you're amplifying, but your amplification isn't to the quality standard that you need. I think the who Who was one of the first groups that actually ended up developing amplification that could handle that. Um, The Beatles struggled with it when they used to tour. Um, And yeah, they were having malfunctions. It wasn't very good. The band at that point was not, they weren't eager to perform in front of people, really. They were kind of like, they would face each other on stage. They wouldn't really interact with the crowd. Um, but, you know, it's it's historic, again, like you said, because as we talked about, 
rock and pop music weren't really overly hip in Toronto. And over the course of 10 years and kind of thanks to people like Ronnie Hawkins, you end up having a festival like the Toronto Pop Festival in which uh, I believe John Lennon and um, Yoko Ono also famously did one of their stops for their uh, sit-in for peace uh, at mm-hmm. Ronnie, Ronnie Hawkins' house himself. But uh, yeah, it was chock full of amazing amazing performances and looking back at uh, the ticket prices nowadays are kind oh of gosh. weird six dollars for the day or ten dollars for both i can't imagine what you would pay for something like that today <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know that's crazy i don't know if it matches inflation or not <laughs> probably not probably not i don't but, think so um next for for hockey yeah. fans, they they might know this mm-hmm. one. Um, stop five, which is the Maple Leaf Gardens uh, on Carlton. Yeah. I used to pass this going to work every day. Um, tell us a little bit about the Maple Leaf Gardens and its significance to uh, the band. Yeah, so I mean, pretty cool looking um, building, and it is still does have an arena inside it. But uh, Maple Leaf Gardens is an incredibly iconic spot in Toronto. I mean, if you talk to people just a few years older than yourself they will have a story from Maple Leaf Gardens, a show they saw or what have you. Um, So originally built to host hockey games It officially opened in 1931. um, And it's opening night was a game between the Maple Leafs and the Chicago Blackhawks, which Maple Leafs unfortunately lost. Um, In 1961, Maple Leaf Gardens expanded its seatings and sold out every single game for almost a decade. And while the the Maple Leafs, uh, they eventually moved out of the arena, but its music history is still very worth talking about there is this is probably i mean it's seen almost as many crazy bands as matthew hall um elvis played here on one of his first non not it was one of his first non-american shows in 1957 um the beatles stopped by in 65 66 and 67 um other people abba played tracy chapman played there bruce springsteen and yep bob dylan played there (laughs) um back-to-back nights with the guys uh, January 1974. Awesome. Wait, that wouldn't have been 1974. They wouldn't have been playing with Bob Dylan, would they? Oh, yeah, yeah, because the yeah, band okay. went uh, back on tour as as the band. Right. They they did a joint tour with him and promotion of their album Planet Waves that they did together in 1974. But uh, the Beatles okay. is a cool one. Uh, that was really big for Canada, and I remember uh, okay. for the band they were living in upstate New York, but they made a trip back to Toronto just to hang out with the Beatles because uh, they had become acquainted and obviously. Um, uh, they were becoming friendly with them, um, so that's that's cool. And there, you can you, you can find the full concert video of uh, mm-hmm. of uh, Bob Dylan and the band from their '74 tour online. All in all, that's it. Toronto is a huge, diverse city with a ton of culture and not just music, but everything. Um, totally. And all in all, I, I kind of want to ask you a few questions about this. So obviously, you put this together. Okay. You did a lot of research, but if if um, what was your favorite spot that you kind of found along the way that like really intrigued you the most? Obviously you've been to a lot of these places, but what one was really kind of the most interesting to you? I mean, Massey Hall has always been kind of like a, my baby, but I'm going to say for this, uh, Pop Ivy's was the one that really surprised me. Um, I'd reached out to the archives early in my research, the archives down in Port Dover and they were closed, um, just because of COVID, but so they couldn't tell me anything about it. And then, I was kind of just ready to strike it off the um, the itinerary altogether and then 
just like on a fluke, I'm like, I'm going to Google it one more time. And I came across this awesome blog and basically was able to put two and two together. And I've been there so many times and not knowing um, what used to stand there. And there's Facebook posts about it um, where people kind of recount their memories. And it was, that was a really neat one um, and surprising one. Cool. So specifically when you're, when you were kind of putting this together, obviously it's very band uh, centric, very Hawkins centric. Um, was, is there any kind of favorite stories or other things that you've learned about the band that um, uh, intrigued you? Yeah. So I've actually been working my way through this podcast, listening to the episodes. Um, and I just finished the one called divide and conquer where they're all kind of off doing their own, their own thing. Um, and one of my favorite was, Jesse Winchester working with Robbie on his album. And I loved the music that you were playing in the episode from that. But I thought it was so funny how afterwards um, Jesse does a review where he says, it's not even my record. Like this was Robbie's record. <laughs> Robbie yeah. comes back and it's like, I'm so surprised you would say that it's his record. Um, but you can really hear Robbie's influence all sure. over the music, of course. So For I sure. loved that kind of little tidbit. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that was such a that's such a bizarre story. I didn't know that. As somebody who mm. felt like I knew a lot when I started digging into some of that research, I was like, "Wow, what is this can of worms here?" Even Jesse Winchester as a as a character, as a as an individual, has such an interesting story. Yeah. Well, Gabby, I just wanted to thank you again for coming on today, and I really hope people will enjoy this road trip for themselves. That was our episode with Gabby of The Hippie Historian. One note I want to say before uh, anything else is because of COVID, we'd recommend you take this route with precaution. Respect local rules and laws and make smart choices for yourself. For our American friends, who unfortunately can't do this right now, uh, we hope that you'll be able to cross the border soon and experience this trip. It is definitely a unique experience and isn't going anywhere, so we hope to see you soon. Now, if you want to find out more about the route and the topics we talked about today, please head over to hippiehistorian.com. Gabby's compiled some great resources there for you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com 
Pantheon.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.